Have you ever heard something that sounded kind of strange? Maybe once or twice. This past week, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Queen Elizabeth's husband, turned 94 years old. What if I were to tell you that if you would believe in and pray to Prince Philip, that you can have eternal life? Does that sound a little bit strange to you? Well, it may sound a little bit strange to you, but according to AP reporter Nick Perry, that is exactly what a few hundred people on the island of Tana in the Pacific Ocean believe. They believe that Prince Philip is the son of their ancestral god who lives up in the mountain on their island. And they pray to Prince Philip. And they believe in Prince Philip. And they pray and ask him to bless their crops. And they pray and ask him to bring the sun and to bring the rain. And, and when it happens, they believe that he answers their prayers. And they also believe that a day is coming, one day, when the spirit of Prince Philip is going to come back to the island. And fish are going to leap out of the ocean. And they are going to receive eternal, everlasting life. A little different. So where does the Prince Philip religion come from? Well, it seems to have come from the John Frum religion. Well, what's the John Frum religion? Well, around the 1960s, the Prince Philip religion kind of popped up on the island. But about 30 years before that, the John Frum religion popped up on the island. But it was really not until World War II that the John Frum religion got some movement. Around that time was when some of our American soldiers were stationed in that particular area of the Pacific. And so during that time, the John Frum religion actually adopted the American flag as one of their symbols of their religion. And once a year, they have a, a flag-raising ceremony. And they even have a, a march where people will come and, and with uh, imitation bamboo rifles will come and, and have a drill-style march. So what's the flag-raising about? What's the bamboo rifles and the march about? Well, it's part of their religious system that believes that one day, John Frum is coming back to Tana. And when he comes back, he is going to bring them spiritual and financial wealth. In fact, years ago, one of their chiefs was interviewed, and this was his quote in the interview, John Frum is our God, and John Frum is our Jesus. Now, that all sounds a little bit strange to us in the southern United States, worshiping John Frum and worshiping Prince Philip. But it may sound strange to us, but it's not strange to the people of Tana. They really, really believe in John Frum, and they really believe in Prince Philip. Lamar Lindstrom is a professor of anthropology at the University of Tulsa. He said this about Tana. The people there believe in everything and nothing. They believe in everything, and they believe in nothing. That might sound a little bit familiar to us on the Big Island of America. In 2000, the Barna Research Group did a poll of Americans and found that four out of ten Americans believe that there are absolute moral truths that are unchanging. Well, what's an absolute moral truth? Well, an absolute moral truth 
is a truth that is universal, it never changes, and it helps us to determine and define what is right and what is wrong and what is real. And so in 2000, this survey was done, four out of ten believed in absolute moral truths that are unchanging. Now, some people in our culture don't believe in any absolute moral truths. They believe that everything is defined by feelings and opinions. In other words, when you're in a given moment and you feel like what you're about to do is the right thing to do, then for you, that is truth in that moment. So four out of ten in 2000 believed that there were absolute moral truths that do not change. They did the same poll two years later in 2002, and the number was cut in half. Two out of ten people believed in absolute moral truths that do not change. So it's been 13 years since the last poll, at least that number. I wonder where that number is today. How have things changed? Now, statistics are not divine. They're not straight from the Bible, but I do think statistics are helpful. And these particular statistics at least help us to see what we kind of know about our culture, right? It's not a stretch to say that, that the culture that we live in believes in anything, everything, and nothing, all at the same time. But what if we weren't talking about our culture? What if we weren't talking about poll numbers? What if we weren't talking about people who live on an island somewhere in the Pacific who worship John Frum and Prince Philip? What if we're talking about this church? What if we're talking about your home? What if we're talking about the person that you look at in the mirror every day? What do you believe? Who are you worshiping? Well, the short answer is this. What you believe in who you worship is seen in how you live. But what does that look like? Well, let's see if we can find out this morning by looking in the mirror of our hearts with Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Those sound like two fancy religious words. What do they mean? Well, we used a hopefully simple definition last week from Bobby Jameson that goes like this. Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. In other words, sound doctrine is understanding the message of the Bible and then taking that message and actually using it and living it out in the way we think and the way we talk and the way we act and the way that we live. The word here for sound is a word that kind of means healthy. We know what healthy means, right? Healthy means eating 6 to 12 servings of fresh vegetables a day instead of 6 to 12 glazed donuts a day. You know, that's healthy, right? Why is that healthy? Well, it's healthy because you know, vegetables, fresh vegetables, they, they're naturally low in fat. They have, have nutrients that can help your body stay better maintained. They have nutrients that might even help you fight off certain infections and diseases. Glazed donuts don't really do any of that, you know. But they taste great, but they don't do any of that great thing that the vegetables do. Healthy, we understand. I had a friend who lived in a foreign country for a number of years, and they were telling me one time about how the meat market worked, how you would buy meat. It wasn't exactly up to USDA standards by what we would think of. You would go to the marketplace. It was out in the hot air and the heat. 
And all the meat would just be hanging up there for the whole world to see. And it would be hanging up there for all the flies in the world to see as well. Everything just out there for you to get. We would probably think that getting a ribeye from that meat market probably might make us sick. We would consider that to be an unhealthy way to purchase meat. When we talk about doctrine, sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. We, we get doctrine right because it's good for our lives, not just so that we can impress people with the information that we know. So sound doctrine leads to sound living, but the flip side would also be true. Diseased doctrine leads to diseased living. It means things are off. Some people define their whole life by one Bible verse. They say that they believe in the God of the Bible, but do they really believe in the God of the Bible? They say, well, I believe in God, but is, it, is the God com- contained in the pages from Genesis to Revelation? See, sound doctrine is not just one Bible verse. Sound doctrine is not just two Sundays a year, Christmas and Easter. Sound doctrine is not just a handful of things that you may have heard from your parents or your grandparents. There's more to sound doctrine than that. You see, just like the fly-infested meat hanging out in the hot open-air market, if our doctrine is not based on the God of the Bible, then our doctrine can be diseased. Or maybe put it another way, it is possible for a person to go to church every single Sunday of their life and yet be seriously, spiritually sick. Diseased doctrine leads to diseased living. So this is where the idea of non-Christian Christians comes into play. Now, that's a contradiction, right? I mean, those two words don't go together, non-Christian, Christian. It is a contradiction, but it is also a reality. One day, Jesus was talking to some very religious, church-going, good-deed-doing folks, and he quoted to them the words of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They were worshiping Jesus in word and deed, but that's all it was. It was just words and deeds. It was just words and works. Their heart was not worshiping Jesus. Their heart was not connected to the Lord. S. Lewis Johnson shared a story once about a Danish theologian and an experience he had as a child. He wrote, He was disillusioned as a boy because he discovered that as he attended church, he saw people who seemed to be particularly interested in God, at least on the first day of the week. But they did not seem to take God very seriously throughout the balance of the week. And in one of his writings, he asked himself a very penetrating question. And here's the question. How do you make Christians out of people who are already Christian? See, even as a boy, he was experiencing this thing of non-Christians being Christians. This, This whole notion of, well, they say they're Christian, but I don't see any Christianity in their life. At least not outside of Sunday. He saw people who honored Jesus with their lips, but did not honor Jesus with their lives. Gordon Fee wrote this, Healthy teaching leads to proper Christian behavior, love and good works. The disease teaching of the heretics leads to controversies and arrogance and abusiveness and strife. There's a good question in there for every church to always be asking. Are we known for love and good works? 
Or are we known for arrogant controversies over personal preferences? If there are arrogant controversies over personal preferences, 9.9 times out of 10, it's going to be connected to the fact that there is a lack of sound doctrine. Not that there's no doctrine. There's doctrine, but there's not sound doctrine. There's not healthy doctrine. And usually the kind of doctrine that exists is based on one of two things, either too many traditions or too many new, cool, hip strategies. In other words, when it comes to the notion of sound doctrine being the wrong thing, it's a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top, but the gospel is not the main course. The gospel is not the main dish. There's something else that is being used as more important. Oftentimes in the church, healthy doctrine takes a back seat to our numbers. We count how many people have joined. We count how many people are being baptized. We count how many ministry programs we have. And all of those things are very, very good. I mean, after all, Jesus told us to do ministry and to baptize, right? But those things can also be misleading. You see, the Bible's definition of sound doctrine is not just the appearance of spiritual health. It's actual spiritual health. God is looking for health and virtue and character in the church first and most. And health and virtue and character can be measured by numbers. And sometimes it can't be measured by numbers. Let me give you an example. Imagine that there's a a church somewhere out in the country. And imagine that over the, the course of 50 years... They've never had more than 50 people that show up on Sunday mornings. About 50 people in attendance. And maybe they have one or two baptisms a year. Now we might say that that kind of attendance over 50 years would make them kind of a a dead, plateaued church. But now imagine that every year that church out in the country sends two people from their church to a faraway land to take the gospel of Jesus to a place that doesn't have any churches and there's not a whole lot of people that have heard about Jesus. In other words, they're taking sound doctrine, they're making true disciples, and then they're constantly sending people out to go make more disciples. That doesn't sound much like a dead church to me. That sounds like a church that's engaged with the gospel, even though the the numbers might seem to tell us something different personality of that church was built on the gospel and it was seen in what they lived even though it may not have been seen in the statistics you know technically Jesus had 12 people in his church 12 folks and 11 of those 12 heard the sound doctrine that Jesus gave them and they changed the world as we know it now that is an astounding statistic. But let's take it away from the church for a second and take it into the home. How many of you have children 18 years or older who have left your house, they're on their own, they're doing their own thing, and they're plugged into a local church? If so, count your blessings. Statistics show that 70% of youth, 70% leave the church when they graduate from high school. They exit They step away, and they have nothing else to do with the church. 
That same study noted that 10 years later, about half of them will come back to the church. And my guess is the half that come back, they're coming back because 10 years later, what are they doing? They're starting to have kids. And so they think it's important to have the kids in church. So it's very possible that we have a really bad cycle of thinking that Christianity is all about making sure that the kids are in church from birth to 12th grade, but maybe nothing beyond. Now, is it always a parent's problem or the parent's fault when a kid raised in church falls out of the church? No, not at all. But it does mean this. As parents and as grandparents, we should be asking the question on a pretty regular basis. Are we raising our kids in church or are we raising our kids in Christ? Because there's a difference. Are we giving them sound religion or are we giving them sound doctrine? Hang on, same thing, right? Sound religion, sound doctrine, that's the exact same thing, right? Remember what Jesus said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus did not say you don't have any doctrine. He said you've got doctrine. It's just not sound doctrine. It's not healthy doctrine. He specifically says it was doctrine centered around the precepts of men. What is that? Well, the precepts of men means that there are some aspects, some rules, or some personal preferences that are being put before the truth of God. It's not that the truth of God isn't there. Again, a little bit is sprinkled, but for the most part, the main course is something else. The main course is the doctrines of men. And again, as we said a moment ago, religious rules and personal preferences can be traditional or they can be contemporary. In other words, the one thing that might draw a person away from worshiping God with their heart could be the old traditions of man or it could be the new traditions of man. Titus is living in a culture full of new and old traditions. Unfortunately, the traditions of his culture, the new ones and the old ones, were all full of sin and lies and greed and gluttony. In fact, the sin and the lies and the greed and the gluttony that were around the community that Titus lived in, those things were defeating families, and they were dividing the government, and they were destroying the culture. Nothing like the world we live in anymore, right? So Paul gives him some advice. And what kind of advice does he give him for living in a time like that? This is what Paul said. But as for you... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That was his advice. His advice for living in a sinful, immoral culture was have sound doctrine. But not just to have it, but to speak it. The word for speak the things here is not just saying words. It's actually living out those words. The Living Bible has a a great way of wording this verse. I like how it says it. Speak up for the right living that goes along with true Christianity. True Christianity is that which is marked with sound doctrine. Again, sound doctrine leads to sound living. Now, somebody might say, ah, we're just talking about, you know, head knowledge. You've heard that phrase, right? Well, he's got a lot of head knowledge, but he doesn't have a lot of heart knowledge. Well, that's not true Christianity. See, sound doctrine is not going to lead you to go be a monk on a farm somewhere way outside of Provo, Utah, and never have anything to do with anybody ever. The flip side is also true. Somebody might say, well, he doesn't have much head knowledge, but man, he's got a lot of heart knowledge. That's not true Christianity either. 
You see, sound doctrine is not going to lead you to have a life full of good moral deeds and have absolutely nothing to do with the truth of God's Word. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. And sound living is fueled by sound doctrine. I read a story this week about a guy who was working in a a law firm. He asked one of the lawyers to come to church with him. And the lawyer said, well, what church do you go to? And and the guy told him what church he went to. And the lawyer said, look, I don't go to church anywhere, but I'm definitely not going with you to that church. Because the most crooked lawyer in this city goes there. Wow. Now, I'll be the first to say this. We can't police every single person who attends a church. Nor should we police every single person who attends a church. But there is a truth that we don't need to miss in that story. A lack of sound doctrine will lead to a lack of sound Christians. A lack of sound doctrine will lead to to a lack of Christianity, functional biblical Christianity in the church, but also in our homes. There may be a lack of sound doctrine, but we might have a lot of sound religion. See, sound religion is completely different. I heard a story this week, a very sobering story about what it means to have empty religion. It was a story about a little girl that grew up with very strict parents. They had lots and lots and lots of rules. She was always getting punished for all the things that she was doing wrong. Was always getting in trouble. But after a while, she decided she was going to start using her parents. And she was going to start using their system to get what she wants. And so she just started doing whatever she wanted and taking the punishment. She did the crime and she did the time. And all the while, what she was doing was getting her way and then paying for it. That is sound religion. Sound religion says, I'm going to do whatever I want to this week. But I'm going to be sure I still go to church on Sunday and I still tithe and I still confess sins to the minister or or maybe I rededicate myself over and over and over again. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I feel like things are right between me and God, even though I'm not really following Him. That's sound religion. It's not sound doctrine, but it is sound religion. And in a way, what we're doing is we're trying to buy favor with God. But here's the problem. You can't buy favor with God. That's what Paul said to the Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Nobody's left out of that. Every person, past, present, future, every person in history, every person ever falls short of being perfect. None of us are perfect. And so since we're short of being perfect, we can't rescue ourselves. We need to be rescued. And that's why the gospel is great news. So coming to Jesus Christ and and following after Jesus Christ is a call to repent of your sins, to repent of those ways and those actions that are working against God and His ways, to repent of your rebellion against God's holiness. It's also a matter of repenting for the things that you're doing against others, the sin that you're committing toward others. But here's the part that I think we leave out more often than not. Coming to Jesus Christ also includes repenting of your good deeds. 
I heard a pastor say that this week, and, and I had to rewind. What? What did he just say? Yes, it's repenting of your good deeds. It's repenting of the, of the thought that you are going to be right with God if you are just a moral, hardworking, good citizen. See, that's the opposite of what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us we fall short and that we can't moral ourselves into heaven. Here's how Jesus talked to people who thought and acted that way. Matthew 23, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and then for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. You see, sound religion may lead to loud professions of faith in Jesus, but a loud profession of faith in Jesus is useless if the normal pattern of our lives is the opposite of Jesus. A loud profession of faith in Jesus is useless if the normal pattern of our lives is just public religious activity. In other words, don't be the crooked lawyer and don't be the religious hypocrite. The gospel calls us to something completely different. Jesus might say it this way today. There are people who honor me with sound religion, but their hearts are far away from me. Tim Keller wrote this. Jesus Christ deconstructed religion savagely, repeatedly, and relentlessly, trying to clear the ground for his message. Jesus Christ is one of the most anti-religious people in history. What's Jesus' problem? What's Jesus have against religion? Well, what he has against religion is he didn't leave heaven to come to earth to endure the cross and all the shame to give us religion. That wasn't his message. And why was that not his message? Well, because sound religion does not bring true, lasting freedom. See, what makes the gospel great, what makes the gospel wonderful, is that it is full of sound doctrine. And sound doctrine tells us that through Jesus Christ, we can actually be free. That freedom is found in Jesus. Now, how does sound doctrine do that? Well, this is going to be an oversimplified way of answering that question, but I am an oversimplified person, so hopefully this will make sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. That's a great sentence. It's got Jesus' name in there. It's got him dying on the cross. That's a great, great sentence, but it is not sound doctrine. And here's why. We need the next three words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now it's sound doctrine. Jay Gresham Mockin said this, Jesus' death is an integral historical fact, but it is not doctrine. Jesus' death for sins is doctrine. See, for our sins, those three words change everything. Those three words take it from being sound religion to being sound doctrine. Sound religion can tell you a story. It can give you some rules to live by, but it cannot set you free. Think of it this way. Imagine that you're a prisoner in a rat-infested cell in a hidden basement 
underneath a, a police compound in a foreign land. You haven't seen the sky or sunlight for weeks, maybe months. And when you were brought in, they told you that you had already been sentenced to death for your crime. One day when the guards walk by on their hourly walk through after they leave, the prisoner in the cell next door to you whispers and says, Hey, I, I know a way of escape. I know a way we can get out of here. And he begins to, to tell you about it. It's just it's 12 steps. And the 12 steps are not that hard. They're, they're things that you can do. And so he begins to, to tell them about, tell him about the 12 steps and what you have to do for each step and that those things will grant you freedom. So you ask him, hey, how do you know about this escape plan? And he said, well, when I was brought in here, I, I found it on a piece of paper that was shoved into the bricks in my cell. And then you ask him, what probably should be another important question, well, hey, how come you haven't escaped? And he said, well, the thing about it is everybody that's tried always dies after the 12th step. They get through the 12, but they still die. They never gain their freedom. Now imagine the same scenario, but let's change the story a little bit. Instead of a prisoner in the cell next to you whispering to you, it's a guard that comes to your door. He opens up the door to your cell, and he tells you to come and follow him. And you start walking down this long hallway. And you're thinking to yourself, well, this is my time. I'm on my way to be executed. And you get to the end of the long hallway, and, and he opens the door, and you are blinded with the sun shining from the sky. And the guard says to you, you can go. There was a man who came here this morning. He's innocent of any wrongdoing, but he came this morning. He volunteered to be executed for you, so you are now See, that's the difference between Christ died and Christ died for our sins. See, sound religion gives us rules and gives us great 12 steps, but sound religion cannot give us freedom. Sound doctrine, on the other hand, leads us, drives us, presses us toward the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. We actually can be free through what sound doctrine teaches us, because sound doctrine teaches us the gospel. But you may be thinking, eh, I don't know. Those are still just fancy religious words. Sound doctrine has absolutely nothing to do with my life right now, Dow. Sound doctrine has no connection with me whatsoever. If you're thinking that, then let me just give you one more encouraging thing, hopefully, to help you see how great sound doctrine is. J.D. Greer wrote a book titled, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know For Sure You're Saved. That's a title, right? How to Know Sure You Are Saved. In it, he shares something that I think is very good and helpful for us when it comes to why sound doctrine matters in our day. This is what he writes. If you were honest, you'd probably admit there are moments when you do not feel Christian at all. Moments in which you care more about what's coming on TV that night than you do the spread of the kingdom of God in the world. Moments in which you have fallen to that same old temptation for the thousandth time. Moments when God feels distant, almost like a stranger. Seasons in which your emotions for him are lukewarm, if not downright cold. When you don't jump out of bed in the morning hungry for his word. 
when your mind wanders all over the place during prayer, that is when you can bring yourself to pray. Moments when you're not even sure you believe all this stuff. Ever been there? Ever felt that way? You feeling that way this morning, maybe? So what's the answer? This is what Greer says. The answer is to keep believing the gospel. To keep your hand on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how we feel at any given moment, how encouraged or discouraged we feel about our spiritual progress, how hot or cold our love for Jesus, the answer is always the same. Exercise faith in the gospel. See, sound religion will keep your lips moving while your heart is hurting. Sound religion will keep your lips moving while your heart is empty and cold and full of pain. But sound doctrine will keep your heart full of Jesus. This freedom, this joy, this satisfaction that can only be found in Christ, that's what sound doctrine will do for you when your lips can't This is what Greer says. Many people assume the feeling of being saved indicates whether or not they are actually saved. Feelings, however, are fickle and dangerously misleading. And Scripture never points us to our feelings for assurance. Feelings come from assurance. They are not the basis for it. Assurance is based on the fact of Christ's finished work. Our feelings of being saved come from faith in that finished work. The finished work of Christ. The cross. The reason for Christmas and Easter and the church and everything else is found in Jesus. That's why sound doctrine is so great. Because it keeps pointing us back to Jesus Christ. It never tells us to look somewhere else. One more thing from Greer. Feelings are the fruit of faith not the source of it. So, don't feel your way into your beliefs. Believe your way into your feelings. That's a great sentence. Believe your way into your feelings. The reason those two fancy-sounding religious words, sound doctrine, are so important to your life today is because of that sentence right there. They help you believe in your feelings. Your feelings will not always help you believe, but sound doctrine will help you believe and it will feed your feelings. Because see, your believing is not in feelings. Your believing is not in sound religion. See, what you are believing is the person of Jesus Christ. You are believing in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. That is why sound doctrine matters. Because it keeps pointing us to the cross. Because the cross is where our hope really is. Let's pray.